the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome. I had a, a, a whiplash uh, very early morning. I woke up super early, and right before I did, this ever happened to you, <laughs> right before you wake up, uh, I had a like a, a slice of a heinous dream. Mm. I was like, oh, oh, you know, in my dream. And then I awoke from that dead sleep. I sat up, and I heard, everything's going to be okay. Like, within the space of what I think was maybe six seconds. What do you mean you heard everything's going to be okay? That's what I heard in my head. Everything's going to be okay. Really? Horrible dream. I sat upright, and then I heard everything's going to be okay. Where do you uh, think you heard that from? From God. That's really interesting. Is that a normal occurrence for you? <laughs> I'm happy to report it's not. I mean, because the thing that I was dreaming was so dark, and then to sit upright from that, and then to be comforted, that was wow, a wonderful feeling. that's... Very strange. Yeah. Wow, and you start the show with it well, today. That's a throwdown. Uh, it's, it's been weighing on me throughout the day. I've thought about it many multiple times today, so I just wanted to share that with you. Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Okay. Have you, have you had yourself a heinous dream? Yeah, I don't have very many heinous dreams. Mm. I mean, I sure have in my yeah, life, well, I, but I I'm can, not. I'm not somebody who's plagued by them like on a nightly basis. I can't say that I am either. That's I have friends why. who are mm, really uh-huh. a nightly basis. Yes, oh, that'd be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't yeah, it? and it's been years. Really? Yes. That would scare the heck mm-hmm. out of you. No, wouldn't this it? this is not a, a regular occurrence in my life. All, all the more reason that I sat bolt upright, and then God spoke to me and said, "Everything's going to be okay." So thank you, Lord. Wow! Did mm-hmm. you know it was God? Yeah. Well, you say that like, oh, yeah. I mean. Who else would it be? <laughs> Who Lex, else? Lexi didn't think what? it was us. Right? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't my mortgage company or, you know, the orthodontist bill or anything like that. It clearly was God speaking okay, to well, me. Okay, well, that's crazy. It is crazy. I like it. I do, too. I was going to say what's coming up on today's show, but I don't feel like it matters no, after it, that it point. No, it all matters it on this 30th it? day. It's the last. It's the last day of November. How can that be? Tomorrow's December 1st. What is that? Do you have your tree up? Uh, no. I have my tree up. What? I, 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 I had it up on Monday. Lex, you have your Very tree up. Nice. Yes, I do. Okay. She not only has her tree up at home, she has her tree up in her yes, office. Yes, she does. Yeah. She's, but I need to get a new tree because the lights on that one don't work. What, in the office? Yeah. And if there's no lights on it, really, what's the point? No, yeah. no. No, a bear tree's fine. No, a bear tree is sad. It's sad. I don't think it's sad. It's not sad. No, it's not. It's Why would it be sad? Well, because lights are what bring it to life, kind of, you know, in a Christmas sense. Maybe. I mean, okay. all right. Very all right. Coming up in the five o'clock hour today. Um, this is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Believe me. Could be any weirder <laughs> what's going on in my life already today. How many people across the U.S. do you think teach Bible and theology? 
I never really thought about it. Uh, across the United States of America. Jeez, mm-hmm. mm, I, I, I don't know. Um, let me proffer. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I can't put a number on that. Okay, well, you, you got to pick one. Fifty thousand. Okay, fifty thousand. We're going to talk about that in uh, at around 5.15, right. and we're going to find out if your number is anywhere close. Dr. Amy Peeler is with us, Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Bruce Ankoviak, who's Professor of Law at St. Vincent College, will be with us today. Um, the Constitution, we talk about it a lot, but how often do we know really where it came from or what it's supposed to do? Mm. Like if somebody said, what's the Constitution, I think I could tell them. Yeah. But then they could, if they said, where did it come from? I feel like I might be okay. What's it supposed to do? Then you're in some weeds. I think I might be in some weeds. All right, good. Okay, so we're going to talk Let's about go back that to basics. at 535. And also coming up this hour, uh, Byron Borger is going to be with us, Hearts and Minds Bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, for most of this hour, we're going to be talking books. Uh, if you're looking for great gifts you can give, I've already contacted Byron about a book I'm giving. Really? Uh-huh. I sent him an email a couple nights ago. Um Books that you might want to put on your Christmas list for someone to get for you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're going to be talking all sorts of stuff with Byron Borger. It's books for most of the 4 o'clock hour. Very nice. All that and more, as they say. But first, the new stories, the top stories of the day. Here is the top four at four. For Thursday, November 30th. 2023. Number one, as Israeli forces prepare for a renewed offensive targeting Hamas's top leaders in Gaza, Israeli military and political leaders are confronting the challenge of what to do about the thousands of fighters that represent the group's power base. So to address that challenge, according to today's Wall Street Journal, some Israeli and U.S. officials are discussing the idea of expelling thousands of low-level militants from Gaza as a way to shorten the war. The idea is reminiscent of the U.S. brokered deal that allowed Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of uh, Palestine back in 1982, and his fighters to to escape Beirut when Israel uh, had laid siege to the capital there. The PLO. Right. So the prospect of expelling Hamas fighters is part of an evolving Israeli and American talk about who will run Gaza when the war ends and what can be done to ensure that the territory can never again be used to stage another attack on Israel like the one on October 7th, which is the worst in the nation's history. Read more about that at Today's Journal. Number two, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the country's highest ranking Jewish official, gave roughly a 40 minute speech on the Senate floor yesterday, condemning the anti-Semitism that has exploded across the U.S. following the October 7th attack on Israel, calling it, quote, a five alarm fire that must be extinguished. The address, which was aimed largely at the political left, calls out progressives who celebrated the brutal attack, repeatedly invoked the memory of the Holocaust to him, quote, many Jewish Americans fear what the future may bring based on the repeated lessons of history, he said. Meanwhile, the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania and MIT were called to appear before the House Education and Workforce Committee on December 5th to give testimony regarding anti-Semitism in their respective institutions. That's from today's dispatch. Number three. 
Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. The former Secretary of State was born in Germany in 1923. His parents fled Nazi Germany and immigrated to the U.S. He enrolled in the U.S. Army, became a naturalized citizen, saw combat, volunteered for intelligence duties in the Battle of the Bulge. Can you believe that? Pretty amazing. It's just an incredible life. He got his BA, MA, and PhD from Harvard. He was national security advisor for under two different presidents, uh, co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, and appointed as an honorary knight commander in the most distinguished order of St. Michael and St. George hmm. by Queen Elizabeth II. Read more of the details of that at ABC News. And number four, John, how do you feel about it? The Big Mac is changing. What? The two all-beef patties are going to be cooked in smaller batches for a more uniform sear. There's going to be more special sauce. The lettuce, cheese, and pickles have been rethought to be fresher and, quote, meltier. Hmm. And the bun is now buttery brioche. Hmm. That's your top four. Really? At four. I can't tell you the last time I had a Big Mac. So this doesn't mean anything to you? No. If I'm going to go to McDonald's, which I go to rarely, I'll have a quarter pounder. Okay. I would have a Big Mac in a hot minute. Really? Oh, for it's sure. It's too much bread. No, it's What's delicious. What's extra bread in yeah, the middle? Yeah, I, li- I just like the sauce. Are you kidding? These 50 tweaks to the burger are the biggest upgrades in decades to McDonald's core menu. Interesting. 50 tweaks. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yep. They um, have fallen behind. In there was a question that was uh, asked: uh, Are the burgers desirable? This is a question that was asked after people ingested a burger from a bunch of different establishments. Mm. Only twenty-eight percent of people said they crave another Big Mac. Interesting. But White Castle led the list at seventy-two percent, and Burger King was second at fifty-two. So that's why they said they had to like get on. Very it. good. Okay. Mm-hmm. A little redo there for McDonald's. Yeah. All so right. they're testing it in Australia. Even as we speak, they're going to bring that to uh, the U.S. at the beginning of twenty twenty. And by uh, mid to 2024, it should be everywhere. Excellent. All right. Well, Are you, would, would that yeah, cause you to try? It okay. Would. It would cause Lexi, me to would go. that cause you to try a Big Mac? Not a little probably Big Mac. Not. Okay. No. All right. Okay. <laughs> Lexi, it's definitive. I like that. Yeah, probably, probably not. Kind of. All right. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Come back. Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds Bookstore will join us to talk about titles, Advent books, Christmas books, and the best books of the year. That's straight ahead on the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. It is the most wonderful time of year. Of course, it is Christmas time. But along with Christmas, the most wonderful time of year is a slew of books on Advent, Christmas, and the best books of the year. We are happy to welcome to our show Byron Borger. Byron and his wife are the proprietors of our most wonderful bookstore, Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. Byron, friend, good to have you back. Well, hello. You guys put wind in our sails for saying all these nice things about us, but it's great to talk to you from Hearts and Minds out here in central Pennsylvania. Excellent. Always the truth, Byron. You and your wife, Beth, do wonderful, wonderful work. So today you're with us to talk about Advent books, Christmas books, and the books of the year. Uh, Would you like to start off with the Advent books? Yeah, sure. That's a great idea. Uh, In our Book Notes newsletter that we do every year, we do a big epic list of books about Advent, and there are some classics and some new ones. And I'll just pick a couple to tell your listeners about. My favorite book about Advent, it's a little heavy, it's a little serious, but every serious Christian should own this thing, is simply called Advent, The Once and Future Mm. Coming of Jesus Christ by an Episcopal priest named Fleming Rutledge. Mm. She's a priest.
preacher, a renowned Bible scholar, has a whole bunch of books, and this is her collection of Advent sermons. So this isn't Christmas. This is the waking season of the liturgical calendar where we yearn and long for Christ to come back, the once and future coming. He came once. He comes into our lives regularly, and he is yet to come and return. And so the Advent season helps us focus on those sort of three comings of Christ, past, present, and future. And these are her sermons about all that. It is a great book, one of my all-time favorite uh, collections, and I highly recommend it, Advent by Fleming Rutledge. Outstanding. We have a copy of that on our bookshelf at home. We've read it multiple times. Excellent work. Okay, Byron. Into different parts of it, yeah. It lasts a lifetime. Excellent. Um, Now, in a different kind of tone, there's a lovely little book called Star of Wonder. I love the cover. It's by Angela Hunt. And Angela Hunt is known in some circles as one of these evangelical novelists. She's written Bible-based novels and stories. So she's a good writer, uh, not heavy, but a lovely writer. And her star wonder, the subtitle is an Advent devotional to illuminate the people, places, and purposes of the first Christmas. There's little icons, or not icons, but like woodcuts in front of every chapter, and that just gives it a really classic look. It's kind of a compact size. It feels nice. It's just a really nice little handsome book and creatively written, so that's a that's a fun one. My favorite Advent book of the year, my, of new books this year, is called A Radiant Birth. Advent readings for a bright season, and don't we need that? Um, it was put together by Leslie Leland Fields, I might have talked to you about her before because she's written a lot of stuff that I like. She actually is a fisherwoman. She makes her living in the fishing industry in Alaska. Oh, we know her yeah, well, by Leslie. Oh, yeah. She's been a guest it, on our show. Isn't she great? She's isn't incredible. She just the best? She does writing workshops about telling your story. Well, anyway, here she compiled essays, articles, prayers, poems by everybody from Philip Yancey to Walter Wangren, Eugene Peterson, the great poet Lucy Shaw, uh, uh, Madeline Langle, Richard Foster. It's some of our best, finest Christian writers of the last 25, 30 years, and she put together this sort of reader. Sometimes you get a poem, sometimes you get an essay, sometimes you get a Bible study. Uh, Marilyn McIntyre is in here. Um, it's, it's really, really nice, and the blend of kind of essays and articles and poems and Bible pieces makes it just a really nice thing to settle in with. So that's my uh, choice for my favorite Advent book of the year. But I'll tell you what, I have to tell you about this, and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. It was out last year, and not too many people paid too much attention to it, and everybody's looking at it this year. It's been our biggest seller here in the store. It's called The First Advent in Palestine. Hmm. It is about the Palestinian facts that Jesus was born in the Middle East. He was Jewish, but he was an outcast. He was Palestinian, uh, the Arab-Jewish-Christian complexity over there now. The subtitle of this is called Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. The woman that wrote it, Kelly Nikiande. I think I'm saying that right, is an African woman. She's actually white American, but she married into a, uh, married an African guy, and she lives in Central Africa. Hmm. And she's just had this missional sense of reaching the marginalized and the poor and the hurting. 
Um, so the, she's she's just been involved with a number of Palestinian theologians. You know, there's a lot of Christians in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. Naima Teek and Shadi Kutab, some really great folks, and she draws on them and sort of gives us an untold kind of view of the Advent story and the ongoing, I guess, call for peace in the Middle East. So that's a really rich book and gives you kind of a special glimpse into what um, it, it's like that Mary was essentially a refugee. They were on the run for their lives after Jesus was born uh, under state violence. Um, when mother, I mean, you could just look at it in so many angles, how Mary and Joseph themselves were sort of marginalized in a pretty rough area with state violence and complicated war going on. Yes. And so this is a book that puts you right into that. And uh, it's been a big seller for us this year. Wonderful. It sounds fascinating. We're talking with Byron Borger. Him and his wife, Beth, are uh, proprietors of Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. And Byron is giving us his uh, top picks for Advent books this year, Christmas books later on, and then the top books of the year. Byron, anything left for Advent? Well, um, this is moving in now into Christmas, and I'm just going to say two real quick ones. Um, there is a little series of books. Maybe you've even had Esau McCulley on the on the show. Oh, at yes, some we point. have. You know, he he's got that memoir this year that he wrote about his own life called so "How good. Far to the Promised Land." So, so good. good. But he, as an African American, studied under N.T. Wright. Now as an an Anglican priest, he's interested in the liturgical calendar, the Mm. seasons of Advent and so forth. And he edited this series of books that he invited other authors into and curated for them, this series of books called The Fullness of Time. So there's little hardbacks, little small hardbacks. They aren't devotionals as such where you like read a page a day, but they give you an overview of each of the seasons of the church calendar. The first one Esau himself did on Lent, and then somebody did one on Pentecost. Uh, Tish Warren did the beautiful one on Advent, which is out of stock everywhere right now. It's kind of unfortunate, uh, but that was such a big seller that it's gone. And the next two in the series are now out. The next one is on Christmas, and it's The Twelve Days of Christmas by Emily Hunter McGowan, The Season of Life and Light. And I think for a nice little short read, it is the richest thing I've ever read on Christmas. Really? The history of Christmas, where we get the ideas about Christmas, why it's more than just one day. shouldn't take your tree down on Christmas Day. You get the whole 12 days and living into this season of life and light, she calls it. What's the the title of that book, Byron? Christmas, The Season of Life and Light. Okay. And it's in the Fullness of Time series. And then the next one in the Fullness of Time series is by the great Fleming Rutledge, who we've already mentioned for her Advent book. It's a little small hardback in this Fullness of Time series called Epiphany, (laughs) the Season of Glory. And I wasn't sure I should read this yet because Epiphany, of course, is after the 12 days of Christmas. The wise men come and give their gifts and the epiphany of who Jesus really is as prophet, priest, and king. And they bring him the three gifts, you know. Um, But I wanted to read it ahead of time. I couldn't wait. So I right away dove into it. It is so good. It's Fleming Rutledge. I don't know if it'll be the last thing she ever writes. She has told me once that she wasn't going to write anymore, but then she did this one. (laughs) So who knows if she's going to keep at it. But um, this may be her her uh, certainly her most recent book epiphany the season of glory right. and so that kind of takes you right up through christmas time and then epiphany so those two 
season of uh, fullness of time books are, are wonderful. All right. That's Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallas Town, PA. He is the man to go to to buy your Christmas gifts for the year. Or if you want to add these books to your Christmas list so other people can buy them for you, Byron is a quick email or phone call away. Byron, we need to step away. When we come back, let's continue our book conversation. Yeah? Fantastic. We're continuing our conversation with Byron Borger. Byron and his wife, Beth, own and operate Hearts and Minds Bookstore, which is not in the Pittsburgh area or in western Pennsylvania. It's in Dallastown, PA, but we have gotten to know Byron so well over the years. He's been a consistent presence at the Jubilee Conference put on by the CCO here in Pittsburgh. I don't know. He's done that, he and Beth, for about 100 years, um, and, we, <laughs> and we hope they do it for 100 more. Yes, please. Uh, but uh, Byron is... Uh, a plus when it comes to customer service and finding uh, the books that you need. And so when I buy books for Christmas, I always buy them from Byron. And whenever I put books on my Christmas list, I tell my family to buy them from Byron. Um, I just emailed with him just a couple nights ago, Byron, a book I'm interested in finding. Um, so this is an easy thing to do. It's not like Amazon where you're going to go and you're going to click, 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 mm-hmm. but you're going to have a personal interaction with a human being. And uh, I've been thinking you. about this. And do you have something in mind for that? That. It's the best. And Byron can do that for you. Anyway, if you log on to our Facebook page, The Ride Home with John and Kathy, I am listing all of the books that Byron is recommending for us this hour. All of the ones we've talked about are already up. Um, so Byron, continue. So we talked about Advent books in our first segment. Now are you going to move into Christmas books? Well, I did just those last two Christmas books. Okay. I'd just like to tell you about books that will be gifts and stuff. Okay, great. That? Yeah, great. Okay. Although, I, you know, I will say this, though. Just a couple nights ago at our bookstore, two nights ago at our bookstore, I hosted a webinar. Maybe you saw about that. I do it in our newsletter. But we had a webinar with an author named Paul Lewis Metzger, who uh, teaches at Multnomah, uh, where the Bible Project guys came from. He's at Multnomah in Portland. And he wrote a book called Setting the Spiritual Clock. The subtitle is Sacred Time Breaking Through the Secular Eclipse. Hmm. And he says there is this sort of secular creep of an, uh, uh, eclipsing our transcendent sense of God, our sense of the divine, our sense of God. Even if we're Christians, we still live in this secular world, and we need to do something to keep from eroding our faith in the way we see life and our imaginations. And he thinks the church calendar is the way to do that. Now, he's not a high liturgical Anglican or Episcopal or anything. Uh, he goes to an East Church and he's a down-home evangelical. But he's come to appreciate the broader church's tradition of Advent waiting, and then Christmas, and then Epiphany, and, you know, the Ascension, and uh, uh, Pentecost, and so forth. So he wrote this book called Setting the Spiritual Clock that is a devotional to use through throughout the church year, where he gives you sort of essays and devotional readings about biblical texts that have to do with whatever given season we're in. And then he throws some other ones in, like Mother's Day and the Fourth of July and other important holidays that, if if framed from a kingdom perspective, how do you respond to those civil monuments and holidays that, if we're not careful, can shape us too much? And we've come secularized ourselves because we celebrate more on April 15th at tax day or go back to school day or, you know, January 1st. You know, we don't need those secular days as much as 
we need the flow of the kingdom calendar of the church year. So anyway, that's setting the spiritual clock so to say why we're interested in all this Advent stuff. It's not just counting down to how many shopping days till Christmas, but it's a profound sense of having our sense of time pushed back against the erosion of the secular culture. So that's setting the spiritual clock is a very nice book. And our conversation with Paul, which went about an hour and a half, is going to be posted online soon at our Facebook page and stuff. Once uh, the, the, the publisher gets it up, we'll, uh, we'll replay that so people can watch it. Fabulous. So that that's a new book, Setting the Spiritual Clock. Good. But uh, the Spiritual Clock does lead to Christmas, and we do give gifts. So let me tell you about some gifts. The number one thing I think I want to say, oh, not just number one, but one of the wonderful gifts, it would make a beautiful gift. You probably remember me talking about the books Every Moment Holy, mm-hmm. a liturgical prayer book of litanies where you read back and forth together for everything throughout the day, from drinking coffee to moving your home to going to work, all kinds of things, going to bed, when you're sick, whatever, every moment holy. Then they did a second every moment holy, and that is about grief and lament and loss, prayers for all sorts of sickness and loss and sadnesses in our lives. Well, now, hallelujah, there is a third volume, every moment holy, volume three, and it is the work of the people doing prayers for ordinary life stuff, things you don't even know you should pray about, and it gives you opportunities to pray. It's a beautiful hardback leather bound. It's a blue leather with gold edging. A beautiful book to have. The prayers are by a whole array of people, and the artwork is not only by Ned Bustard who designed the book, but some other artists as well. So there's some black and white art in it with a ribbon marker. It is a beautiful book that anybody would appreciate. Uh, Prayer warriors that understand the value of praying throughout the day will like it. And if you're new to that, It'll open your eyes. It'll be like, wow, a prayer about this or that. Um, So that's a very nice book, Every Moment Holy, Volume 3, available. It's uh, on sale here at Hearts and Minds. Very nice. Another book you could use for a kind of daily devotional, a thing you could give to somebody that maybe is not quite as uh, pious and holy as you might think, really down to earth and kind of funny. The book is called The Lives We Actually Have. The subtitle is 100 Blessings for Imperfect Days by Kate Bowler. I'm looking at... You you like Kate Bowler. Yeah, I love it. So, Kate, uh, I don't know if she's still teaching at Duke. I think she is. Yep. Yep. Um, The Lives We Actually Have. I don't know Jessica Ritchie, but I could certainly recommend it knowing Kate. Yeah, it's it's a it's a daily reading of uh, prayers, but it's just for ordinary kind of broken doubt and aging and when hope feels lost and when you're sick but don't have any answers. It gives you sort of these down home real world. You're not a strange duck. You are an ordinary person if you've got these uh, foibles in our lives. And these are prayers and blessings for these very foibles in our lives. So that would be a great gift to somebody, particularly if they're maybe a little. Uh, off the beaten path or don't know that God cares for them in the ordinary brokenness of their lives, it could be a real gift, even to somebody that's not a follower of Jesus. It it would be a great gift. Okay, thank uh, Byron, I have to put you on hold for a minute because we need to take another break. Uh, But we're talking to Byron Borger, Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, PA. Um, I suggest, John also suggests, uh, Byron, for all your Christmas needs when it comes to books. And we're talking about a lot of recommendations. Find us on Facebook, The Ride On With John and Kathy. Everything Byron's talking about, we have listed. We're going to take a break. But after the break, back with more books. It's The Ride Home. 
We are talking books, specifically books for the Christmas season with Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, PA. And Byron has given us some really excellent gifts. As he's talking about this, Kath is also taking note of this and placing all of these titles on our Facebook page so that you can peruse that as well. Listen, we've gotten so many gift ideas, Byron, as soon as this segment's over. I'm going to email you because two of the books you recommended, <laughs> I want to buy. <laughs> oh, we're just getting started. we got to hustle. I'll try to be brief. Okay. No, I like it. Keep going. Do you guys like Tolkien? Yes. The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Stuff. Some people do, some people don't. I'll tell you what. If you have anybody that likes Tolkien in your Christmas list, there is a very recent book called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography by a woman named Holly Ordway. Yeah. She's super, super smart. You yeah, we've had her on, we've had her on the show. Have you really? Yeah. Isn't she something? She is well, something. This is a book uh, by a Catholic publisher called Word on Fire. It's a big, thick, handsome, definitive book that has just the first systematic book-length study of his Catholic faith. Of course, he led C.S. Lewis to Christ, uh, amongst others. Uh, it was uh, argued uh, Lewis into faith, and so Tolkien's own faith has never been explored so systematically as this one. So that is going to be a fabulous, fabulous gift. For people that like history and stuff like that, there's this guy named Andrew Wilson. Maybe you've even had him on the mm, air. I don't think so. Has a new book on Crossway. It's handsome. It's got a textured cover. It's very pretty. A book called Remaking the World. The subtitle is How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. <laughs> we think about the, the secular modernity, the modern world of secularization and individualism, and we don't think of the kingdom and Christ's view of time anymore. Well, some of that, he says, was set into motion or clarified when we had the American Revolution. Now, he's not against the American Revolution. He's a patriot and all that. But he looks at, at uh, I think it's 16 different things, 12, 13 different things that happened in 1776, each one identified by an object, hmm. a tricorn hat, a pistol, a, a certain book. Um, he, he looks at these items from 1776 and shows the implications of how those have helped erode faith and created a post-Christian culture. Hmm. Um, so it is a study of the American Revolution by way of these, I think it's 16 items, and uh, how they have sort of uh, uh, eroded our deepest beliefs down through history and has affected us today. Alan Jacobs has endorsed it. Mark Knoll, the historian, Karen Swallow Pryor. I mean, it's a it's an arresting, thoughtful, fascinating book. Mm, okay. Looks Got it. Remaking for, the world. For your history lovers. Yeah. Yes. Well, and speaking of evangelicals and the imagination and what we believe in our culture, Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm sure everybody uh, in your listenership has heard her. Frequent guest. Her most recent book is one of the books of the year. It's called The Evangelical Imagination. The subtitle is How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Hmm. So it is a study of the history and the images and the metaphors of the 1700s, the 1800s, as the rise of born-again evangelicalism uh, has taken prevalence in American culture, and the good and the bad of that, how it is sometimes sort of... uh, caused some difficulties in our own culture. And so it's studying what happened with the evangelical world. She is a conservative evangelical herself, so it's not an outsider throwing stones, but it is a interesting study. It's an excellent book. Around yes. images. Isn't that something? It, it is. is. It's a great book. And she's a deep thinker, so like, and she's I very like fair. Her a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, here's a new one that you may not know about. It's by somebody named Michael Gullian, who has a Ph.D., graduated, I think, from UCLA, then went to Cornell. But he was the official uh, science editor on Good Morning America for a while. He was on the 2020 and Nightline, all these kind of shows. He did his own show in the History Channel for a while. So he's a Christian reporter in the science world. And he just put out a lovely little book called Let Creation Speak. It's 100 invitations to awe and wonder. Oh, nice. So it's kind of a devotional with each one being sort of a science fact can help us stand in awe of the beauty of creation. Isn't that Mm. neat? Lovely. Let creation speak. Mm. Let creation speak. Michael Gugulian. Excellent. For those that have art people on your list, there's a wonderful book on the arts called Redeeming Vision. A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art. Full-color art inside. Elisa Weichbrot is the author, and she is one of the keynote speakers at Jubilee, the student conference that we do in Jubilee uh, in Pittsburgh in February. She's one of our keynote speakers this year, and her new book is called Redeeming Vision, A Guide to How to Appreciate the Arts. Oh, I haven't heard of this one yet, Byron. Yeah, she is a gem. She's a gem. Elisa. Yeah, we haven't met Elisa yet. Baker Academic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another book that's been out about a year now, uh, Marco Fujimara wrote the forward to it, is by Russ Ramsey. Oh, it's so good. Rembrandt is in the That wind. Listen, this book is so terrific. It has a beautiful cover. But what's inside is even better. Byron, I love this book. I'm so glad. See, the two of them are sort of similar. Yeah. Redeeming Vision, maybe a little more by an art historian. Russ Ramsey's just a pastor. But each of them explaining how we can grow in our faith by learning to love art when we view it through the eyes of faith. Here's an older book that I recommend. We don't. It's interesting. At, at holidays, people come in and say, well, I've got a son. He doesn't like to read, but he watches movies all the time. He watches Netflix all the time. There's a book called Movies Are Prayers. Hmm by a guy named Josh Larson. It's how films can voice our deepest longings. And when we see something in a movie and we go, yeah, that's it. It's because our own hearts resonate with that stuff and they become almost prayers for us. He's the co-host of a podcast called Film Spotting. um, And it's a Christian assessment of the of the surprising goodness in some movies, even some hard movies that you might not think are religious, but there's something between the lines of those films. And so that's a great book to give to somebody, maybe that isn't even a person of faith, but understand somehow that there's something important when they get captured by a good story. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. Movies or prayers, Josh Larson. All right. Brian, got to about five minutes. Well, we have a couple minutes, right? Yeah, Yeah. five, five minutes or so. Well, how about just a couple of short stories or novels? If, if people give novels as gifts at Christmas, I'll just say this. The classic old book from, I think, the 70s, before you guys were born, was called Watership Down. Do you know that oh, book yeah. by Richard Adams? Wonderful. The fantasy novel about rabbits. Well, the same guy that did a illustrated Pilgrim's Progress last year. Oh, yeah? His name was uh, uh, James Sturm and Joseph Stepham, two different guys, put together this book full of little bunnies, full of little rabbits. It's a graphic novel version hmm. of Watership Down. Wow. And so who, tell, like tell me the, the authors again. The and the cartoons, it's James Sturm. Oh, I see it. S-T-U-R-M. Yep, I got Joe it. Sutton. Yep. I got it. Oh, that looks really, wow, that looks beautiful. People have been waiting for this for decades for a really? graphic novel version of this classic uh, 
a sort of dystopian novel. It's a great graphic novel. So anyway, and it's done by this guy who's a Christian. So that's kind of cool. Excellent. Okay. Um, Wendell Berry is a lovely essayist and fiction writer, and he has a collection of short stories that came out this year called How It Went. 13 stories, all set in the same fake town in, in rural Kentucky called Port William. Uh, people that live there, he calls them the membership because you become a member of a community when you care about each other. And so these are 13 more stories of the Port William membership uh, by Wendell Berry, if you want to dip into short stories. Um, Chris Fabry is a Christian novelist. He did that famous one called War Room, but he's done some very interesting novels. And a novel that he did just recently is called Saving Grayson. Hmm. And it is a story about a guy with uh, beginning to get dementia who wants to go home to West Virginia where he grew up. And it's this travelogue road trip about this guy remembering his life and what he comes to cope with when he encounters people in places and forgotten wrongs that affected people and kind of the grace that he comes to experience as you love somebody. Um, so it's about dementia in a certain way, but it's also a travelogue and a neat Christian story about a guy's life. It's well done. Excellent. Very nice. Brian, and I'm... here's one you might not have heard of. Yeah. You know the controversial, edgy writer Rob Bell? Oh, sure. He just wrote a novel. What? It's called Where Do You Park Your Spaceship? The subtitle is An Interplanetary Tale of Love, Loss, and bread. <laughs> it's a big, thick novel, and he says it's the beginning of a trilogy. Hmm. So it's kind of science fiction-y, and it's metaphysical about truth and justice and God and truth and all that stuff. But it's a fun, wild, crazy science fiction story. Where do you park your spaceship by hmm. Rob Bell? Excellent. Good. we got time How for that? one or two more, Byron. Well, you know... Um, I sometimes at Christmas get asked, what, I, what do you give to somebody that's maybe not real faithful, they're not real religious, but they, they're trying to figure stuff out? There's a book that I maybe even told you about before. It's called The Merton Prayer by a friend of mine, a lawyer out in Chicago named Stephen Denny. And Stephen is a Protestant pastor, but he discovered this famous prayer of Thomas Merton, the mystic. Yeah. And the prayer is, uh, you know, the, to, to God. And it says, Lord, I have no, I, I have no idea where I'm going. Yep. I do not see the road ahead of me. I, I cannot know for certain where it will end. And it basically goes on and says, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think that my longing for you to set it straight is has got to count for something. <laughs> We don't know what we're doing, but we think God is with us. And doesn't that count? Hmm. And that prayer saved his life. He was an alcoholic. He got off the bottle. He got his life straightened out. And he decided to write a book, phrase by phrase by phrase, of this famous Merton prayer. Uh, it's by a Protestant, but it's the only book I know of on the famous Merton prayer. It is a beautiful guide, particularly for someone that feels a little confused about life and doesn't know where they're going next. It's a beauty. Another little devotional that I would give to almost anybody is by Cornelius Plantica. It's called Under the Wings of God. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my gosh. Aren't they good? Listen, so he's he's a monthly guest on our show now. And a monthly guest yes, every month. Yes. Yep. And he uh, and the reason we came to the way we came to know him was through this book, yep. which is so lovely. Yep. So we've been going yep. through each essay. I mean, just fabulous. Oh, that's so good. See, I think that would make a great little so do I. talking stuff for just for somebody. It's thoughtful. It's balanced. It's a delight. Yeah. 
Excellent. You know, I've often talked, uh, and we've talked before, uh, you guys, with uh, a book by Jamie Smith called On the Road with St. Augustine. Oh, yeah, that's a good book. Yeah. Real world spirituality for yeah. restless hearts. It just came out in paperback. Excellent. So it's been an expensive hardback. It's now in paperback, but they kept the artwork in it. They kept the pictures. It's kind of half a memoir of Jamie traveling around trying to discover St. Augustine from the fourth century and how that restlessness that St. Augustine had could maybe appeal to contemporary people today. Excellent. So it's it's a it's a unique little book, and it's now it just came out in paperback last week, and so we're sort of tickled about that. Very nice, Byron. That's an excellent listen. Padre of books. We're tickled to have you. Yep, and we posted everything on our Facebook page. Kath has listen. How about contact information? People want to get in touch with you. They hear these titles and they want to say, yeah, let, let me let me say hello to Hearts and Minds. Um, if you go to our website, www.heartsandmindsbooks.com, you'll find us right there. Very nice. There's a contact us page or an inquiry page. You can ask us anything about anything. And people do. <laughs> I bet they do. Hearts and Minds Books. You can find that on the dot web. Com. Uh, dot com, yes. Byron, always a great pleasure. Merry Christmas to you and Beth. And uh, keep all the most excellent work that you do. We need you. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you in February, I hope. At the uh, Jubilee Conference with the CCO, the Coalition for Christian Thanks, Outreach. Man. Very nice. Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds. Do yourself your due diligence. You can check out all the listings that Kath has done. And then uh, happy reading. More than 50 years after the last Apollo mission, the United States will try once again to land a craft on the moon on January the 25th, said the head of what could be the first private company to successfully touch down on the lunar surface. The lander, which is named Peregrine, will have no one on board, and it was developed by the American company, the Pittsburgh company, Astrobotic, who yesterday, the CEO, John Thornton, said it will carry NASA instruments to study the lunar environment in anticipation of NASA's Artemis manned mission. John said yesterday, one of the big challenges of what we're attempting here is attempting a launch and landing on the surface of the moon for a fraction of what it would otherwise cost. Only about half of the missions that have gone to the surface of the moon have been successful, so this is a daunting challenge. Mm. Now, uh, the, uh, the spaceship will launch on Christmas Eve, but because of the logistics and timing and especially light on the moon, it will not land until January 25th. Of course, there'll be a lot of uh, people holding their breath here on the north side and in Pittsburgh and across the globe, uh, wishing that the Peregrine, hoping for the best as it tries to make a first landing. There have been two landings on the moon that have both failed recently. India? So, India. And um, China was the Russia. Other? Russia, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's hope this happens well. Mm-hmm. So you must be psyched about that. Well, you know, John was on the show maybe about a year or so ago. Probably. And Astrobotics has grown, uh, as you might imagine, if they're developing something to land on the moon, by leaps and bounds. There's also a, a space museum on the north side that Astrobotics operates. And I just read in the Pittsburgh Business Times a couple of days ago that they hope to triple their footprint, real estate-wise, on the north side. So they're anticipating good things moving forward. Okay, so the... Um the proposal was released that 
went before city council on the huge, enormous screen that's going to go right. by PNC Park. Yes. So maybe there could be some link. Like <laughs> yeah. you could you could link up the screen with what is going on down the street at Astrobotic. That'd be cool. And then maybe when there's a moon landing, seriously, that could be, be incredibly excellent. cool viewing. That, that would be cool. I mean, too bad that, you know, the screen wouldn't be up for the, uh, the launch and the landing. Because I would imagine there'll be video of the landing when it happens on January 25th. Super cool. Yeah, the screen's not going to be up. No, it won't be. But yeah. go Astrobotics. Okay. Yay, Pittsburgh. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Thursday edition of The Ride Home. Wait, before we start, Kathy, uh, today I had one of these moments. I forgot what day it was. Oh, yeah. Have you done this? I mean, this was like a... Yeah. This was like... A, seriously, I, I was at the, um, the, the, the bank machine. Okay. And I, I said to myself, is today Tuesday? <laughs> is it Wednesday? Yeah. Then I... <laughs> then that was neither. I, then I realized it was Thursday. How did this... How, how did the week go by? I don't know. I feel like it did go by did quickly. It? I, I do feel it... that way. I, I don't think you're alone there. I was totally lost yeah. in the ocean of time. I think it was after... I think it's the trip to fan extended release. I know. <laughs> the coma edition yeah. of the week. I have no idea, but anyway, it is Thursday, which I know from my own personal yeah. research. <laughs> I'm a researcher on the days of the week. Good for you, <laughs> Thank John. You. Thank you, Kev. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk to uh, Professor Bruce Ankoviak. He's mm-hmm. a law professor at St. Vincent College on the Constitution at about 540. Um, also, we're going to do Does This Make Sense? coming up at 525. Okay. And just a couple of minutes, we'll uh, do a deep dive into some Bible and theology. Excellent. Hold that ahead. Okay, but before any of that, I mm-hmm. want to talk about something I read in the dispatch this morning that was really surprising to me. As of this week, John, 37 lawmakers, that's seven senators, and 30 House members have announced they won't seek re-election. Whoa. And that's not the end of the story. I mean, more people really? could announce, right? Bef- people are between running. Between now and Election Day. What's this ex- exodus? What's this all about? Okay, well, it's about... Several things, according to the dispatch. Um, Most of all, they say it reflects elected officials growing dissatisfaction with today's politics as usual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Some are leaving to seek higher office. Others are leaving, though, John, because they're fed up with how Congress is operating. Yeah. or, (laughs) Or more accurately, not operating. Quote, I like the work, but the politics just no longer made it worth it. Okay. Said Democratic Rep Earl Blumenauer of Oregon, who announced his retirement late last month. Right on his heels, uh, a retirement from the other side of the aisle, GOP Rep Debbie Lesko of Arizona said, uh, it's just too hard to get anything done. Yep. I mean, who wants to have a job like that? No, horrible. Or it's, anyway. Well, a lot of people do is they go, oh, I'll just you know sit back and take the perks. Well, some people could do that. I'm grateful that at least they're going to leave and not take the purse. A little but integrity. I guess the question is, who's going to take their places? For some congressional observers, the type of lawmakers retiring is even more important than the number of lawmakers retiring. Uh, Doug Hay is a longtime Republican operative, and he said it's the caliber of the members who are leaving that's of great concern. Mm. More than 30% of the House has no more than two years of experience. Wow. 
How about that? Mike Johnson is the least experienced House Speaker since the late 1800s. The least? The least since the late 1800s. So people talk about term limits. These are, you know, sort of self-enforced term limits because people have had enough. Yeah, they're like, I am done. Hmm. Um, Legislative gridlock and partisanship are the only factors contributing to the retirements. The aftermath of January 6th Hmm. is still Hmm. looming large for many members. Um, They said Congress was an unhappy workplace before that, but after that, it's just ultimately gotten untenable. Democratic Representative Dan Kildee, again, I'm reading here from the dispatch. He's from Michigan. He announced his retirement this month, saying he wanted to spend more time at home. But then he said, look, it's also about January 6th. It doesn't stand alone as some event unseparated from the current political environment we're in. The coarsening of political speech, the anger, the obsessive belief in conspiracy theories with no foundation, all of that and January 6th. And I'm out. Wow. Well, you know, I'm sorry to see that happen, right? Because we're going to lose, obviously, some good people. And those who are coming in, the neophytes, considering, you know, who's being elected now, far left and or far right, it seems to be a really funky time. Somebody said, there's part of me that wishes I had served during a different era of Congress, Mm -hmm. a more productive time. You know, I mean, that's just... What an indictment from those who are not doing the work. Politico's Jonathan Martin spoke with several Republican and Democratic lawmakers who urged that those who are retiring would rethink it and stick it out. Really? Uh, It's exactly the wrong people who are wanting to leave, said a Democratic representative from right here in Pennsylvania, Brendan Boyle. He said the performance artists love the circus. It's what they crave. And if you all leave now, you're only going to make it worse around here. You sure are. Okay. So there's a squad on the left and then Mm -hmm. on the right, you know, MTG and Matt Gertz and all this. Right. Right. The politics, the theater of politics is what it's all about. But that very chaos of the last few years that we've been talking about could simply be the final straw for some, again, reading here from the dispatch, when explaining the exits, um, a representative, Patrick McHenry, said that we've had dumb and dumber days. And he said, and there will be more dumb days ahead. Is it any surprise members are saying enough? Dumb and dumber. I mean, it's just... I I mean... But here's the thing. Because of that... It's hard to know what the next Congress is going to look like, because some of these people are in contested districts. Sure. Right. So nobody really knows what could happen after all of these retirements Mm -hmm. and and leaving. Right. It's going to completely reshape the makeup of the Congress, which will be the 119th and potentially decide which party holds the majority. Yeah. And most, of the, and most of the people are leaving because they're fed up. They just had but enough. Then, okay, so if they're fed up and have had enough, they're the only people that can do something about it. No, they're just going to turn it over. They're just going to walk away. Right. So, well, is there, but could you, if you are a person of goodwill, I'm not trying to tell people how to live their life, but if they're sick of things the way they are, they're actually in a position to do something about yes, it. Yes, they are. Even though they feel impotent, they are in a position to do. I mean, I guess we are because we can vote crazy people out of office. But I, 
Too little, too late. Is I vote any... for you, Kath. Please, oh, would you gosh. run for office? Absolutely. Kathy for Congress. Absolutely Lex not. Lex, be the campaign manager. Oh. <laughs> okay, very good. Excellent. Let's do something better with our time, Lex. See, even I, see, I don't want to do it. Yeah, of course, right? Nobody wants to do it. No, because it's so difficult. Because it's a clown show. Oh, my gosh. It makes me mad. All right, let's take a quick break. When we do come back, Dr. Amy Peeler will join us from Wheaton University. She's going to talk about this recent gathering where 10,000-plus people showed up, where they were all... Bible, theology, church history teachers. What was that gathering like? Stick around next. It's the Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. So earlier in the show, John, I asked you how many people you thought taught Bible and theology across yeah, the nation. I really you said no like 15,000. It's like, no, a wild guess. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Right. Um, I, I would guess much fewer than that. I would guess, you said 15,000. I would guess like 4,000. So across the country, how many teach, How many people are teaching Bible or theology or church history? Yeah, I mean, how much of an emphasis is it? I say 15,000. I said four. Okay. Okay, well, we're going to talk to Dr. Amy Peeler next. She's Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, also Associate Rector at St. Mark's Episcopal in Geneva, Illinois. Amy, welcome back. Oh, so good to hear from you all. Hope you're doing well. We are doing well, Amy. And here's the thing. I know that you don't know the exact number, but you did go to a conference which welcomed like-minded people. No, not just like-minded people, people that have the same career as you. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, you guys are kind of, it's right in the middle. It's close to 10,000. Wow. So you were, you know, uh, on either end of that number. So it's not bad. Again, yeah, that's, that's not a definitive, but wow, it's a lot of people. Once that's we true. come into a city, we kind of leave an impression. So, so 10,000 people came to the conference? What kind of conference? What was it called? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There are several conferences that happen back to back, and many people, like myself, stay for all of them. Uh, the first one is Evangelical Theological Society. And as the term indicates, these are people who would identify as evangelical. That would include having a high view of the authority of Scripture. So these are people who are coming from like Southern Baptist institutions or institutions like my own, Wheaton College. Um, that leads into the um, Institute for Biblical Research. And that's a little broader. You d- there's not as specific a doctrinal statement to sign to be a part of IBR. So you might have people who um, you know have a different way of express- expressing their view of Scripture. And then that leads into the Society of Biblical Literature, which is very broad. You have um, scholars of all faiths, Jewish scholars who study the Bible, or um, and uh, partnered with that is the American Academy of Rich- Religion, which is anything that you can imagine doing with religion, all faiths, ritual studies. So when you put all of those together, which are right after one another, then you get to that number of close to 10,000 people. That's pretty amazing. So what was that like for you? I mean, it it had to be, you know, like um, evangelical geekdom for people. Exactly right. It totally is. I I, I uh, like to refer to this as the big dance. Uh, it's, <laughs> it is just a joy uh, to reconnect with friends, see friends from graduate school, from other places you've studied, uh, to do some networking, to meet all the publishers are there. There's a room that's multiple football fields big, really? full of books and only books from all publishers who wow. publish um, biblical studies religion. 
so you connect with them. And then they're really the, the main feature is the giving of papers. So if you're trying out an idea, you can get feedback from your peers, not just at your own institution, but from really across the world, so that you can improve your ideas for future publication. Really? So it is a rich several days. I It is the highlight of my uh, vocational year. Wow. Interesting. Okay, so when people hear you talk about that, obviously, for, for most of us, it's not our world. Um, what does that what does that do for you? But also, what does that, mm. I don't know, what does that tell us about the atmosphere mm. uh, when it comes to uh, biblical and religious study that's going on in our country now? Yeah, oh, that's a really great question. There's been several discussions in recent years with the struggles of higher education, in particular in the humanities. How many young people say, why do I need to get a humanities degree? What can I do with that? So there's a sense of needing to communicate to the wider world the value of studying seriously faith. Now, I think most Christians are pretty convinced of that value. But say in a state school setting, which may have Department of Religion or even Biblical Studies, that's a much harder job mm-hmm. to convince people of the value. But, but we like to display that when you can think well about human history, about how humans have thought about relating with God. This speaks to current ethical issues. It speaks to studying well generally. And so for young people to continue to want to be trained in these fields, it's of high value, no matter what job you may end up having. Hmm. So I think that that speaks to the remaining robust sense, like the numbers haven't declined in the past five or ten years when higher education has suffered a bit. There's still many young people who feel a sense of passion and call into this field, and they continue to come. Wow. Amy, I can't tell you what good news this is to me, because when you think about the state of the faith, whether it's here in the United Mm -hmm. States, people fighting with each other, people leaving denominations and all that, so some good, Mm -hmm. serious minds are interested in theology and getting together to share those ideas. Yeah. And you know, it does really allow you to connect to people that you wouldn't see anywhere else, Mm -hmm. maybe institutions that don't normally partner together. And that is one of the best aspects for me, uh, connecting with people that I may have disagreements with, but we can conduct civil conversations and try to improve one another's thinking. Uh, It's, I mean, there's sometimes some fireworks that happen and sometimes strong words are exchanged, but it's all done to better ourselves and to better understand our discipline. So it is a real picture of unity, actually. I love it. Dr. Amy Peeler is with us. Uh, she's the author of Women and the Gender of God. She's Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Um, Amy, what about that idea? Um, I spoke somewhere recently and I was talking about the importance of um, being open to other people's denominational views. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily that you have to, li- not that you have to leave your denomination, not that you have to change your opinion, right. but just, just the importance of hearing what other What's pe- happening there. Yeah. What hear how other people think and how did they arrive at that? Um, and that's not a message that a lot of people wanted to hear. Uh, right. And so, um, and, Again, I speak just as a person who, because of the work that John and I do, we're exposed to a ton of ideas. I feel like I've benefited so much from that. Um, Can you talk to the person who's listening? I'm not trying to talk anybody out of being a Catholic or trying to talk anybody out of being Orthodox or Methodist or whatever it is. But what about the idea of just hearing from others? 
Yes. Well, maybe I can provide a specific story of that that was really pertinent for me this year. Um, I was privileged to be able to have a panel on my book that came out last year that you just mentioned, Women and the Gender of God. And in attendance were several prominent Southern Baptist leaders. Hmm. I, I won't mention their names just because I haven't gotten permission to do so. But these are people that do not agree with um, my writing. And yet they sat in a session that was three hours long. It was a very crowded room, and so it was kind of hot and uncomfortable. And they gave the gift of their time to listen. And then they asked questions, and we had a back and forth. And I don't think we left with the sense of agreement, but I was grateful that they invested their time and energy to listen. And I think maybe that should be an encouragement for people in the pews. If they feel like to be faithful, they have to hold very tightly to their particular expression of Christianity, I think it would be a wonderful thing to know that the people whose books they're reading do this kind of interaction with others who think differently on a regular basis. Yes, at this annual meeting, but there's lots of conferences like this. And so if you trust a leader, know that the leaders of your denomination, many pastors come to this event, even if they're not in the academy, your leaders are doing this kind of engagement. And I hope that would provide a sense of comfort that you can do the same with your neighbors and not be threatened that you're going to have to give up your conviction. Wonderful. Amy, I I have no idea what this is like, but I I hear you speaking and it excites me because I imagine being in a room full of people like this over an extended amount of time. and, And I would also imagine that for the most part, these are people who want to know and love the Lord. And they're also, from your perspective, you know, academians. So all those things together and everyone together in the same room, it's not, it's not worship, so to speak, but in some ways there had to be a worshipful attitude. Yes. Yes. And that comes to expression in different places uh, more strongly than others. So there is a worship service at the Institute for Biblical Relig- uh, um, Research, excuse me, and that's on Sunday morning. There are many denominational groups that have meetings. And even I was a part of a session that was on Advent readings and, and how we understand the theology of all the texts that we're about to read in Advent. That was a, a panel of a Presbyterian, myself, an Episcopalian, and a Catholic scholar. And we actually began the session with a time of prayer. And so that was a beautiful picture that we're not just kind of walking heads, but we're whole people who are really most of us doing this work to deepen our relationship with God. I love that so much. Amy Peeler with us from Wheaton College. Amy, before you leave us, talk a second about Wheaton. Um, I I imagine you're probably close to finals, if not in them already. Yes. Almost. We have one more week of classes and then into finals. Uh, We have a lot to be thankful for. We went through some budget challenges last year, and yet I think the um, deep cuts that we had to make were in a better place. We had good enrollment, and we continue to have uh, just amazing students. And so we're a kind of place, because we're not tethered to a particular denomination, we're a kind of place like SBL, like Society of Biblical Literature, that we get to experience conversations 
communication across difference all of the time. My students come from all different backgrounds and they learn from one another as we try to understand God's word better. And that's a beautiful thing that I get to experience pretty much every day of the week. Outstanding. That's really good. Find out more about Dr. Amy Peeler uh, at the Wheaton College website. Also, you can check out her book, Women and the Gender of God. Amy, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Amy. Always a pleasure. Well, I wish you all a wonderful Advent as it begins this week. Yes, and you as well. Thank you so much. We'll take a quick break. Come back. Our daily feature. Does this make sense? That's next here on The Ride Home. We're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. Does this make sense? Does what make sense? Christmas caroling. I so want to have it make sense. Me too. I mean, for years, my wife and I are like, let's gather all of our friends. And let's go caroling. Let's all go. We never do it. However, have you been at home and a caroling group shows up at your front door? Not in the decade. It's kind of... It's kind of what? (laughs) (laughs) Off-putting. And I want to do it. Right. And I'm saying to myself as I open the door, oh, oh. (laughs) You're all here now. Well, (laughs) look who's shown up. Now what do you want? (laughs) I got no money. I don't think I even have cookies. (laughs) Good job, you guys. Okay, I'm going to close the door now. Okay. Have have a nice day. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what does that mean? That means it doesn't make sense. No. I mean, door to door. I mean. What other caroling is there? How about in front of the giant eagle? Well, okay. That's different. No. Okay. But I'm talking about the knock at the door. I'm talking about the face to face. Right. We have done this. I mean, this part, our kids were little, so it's been, you know, 20 years ago. We did do it. I mean, I probably haven't caroled since I was in high school. Mm Mm-hmm. I love the idea of it. Yeah. But does it make sense? I don't. I want. Uh, yes. I want it to make sense. I want it to make sense. I want to sing and I want but to proclaim. You guys, I think we. Have we passed that era? I hope it, not. I don't. I hope not. I hope not. But neither one of us. Well, that's just us. If they come to your door. I would be happy and I would I would love them. But inside I would be like, oh my gosh. Cringy. Yeah. Pushing your toe down. But maybe that's good. Maybe I should be pushed. Yes. Maybe I'm too isolationist. Could be. All right, that's excellent. Are does we, are we both hanging on to it? Does make sense? Barely? Yeah, it makes sense. Like it the does skin make of our teeth? Yes. Okay, I got nothing compared to that. I mean, does this make sense? Oysters on the half shell. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. That gags me. What? That it gags you? Gags me. When's the last that time you That does not really? make sense. That's what? disgusting. A little hot sauce? That's disgusting. Suck that down? Oh, mm. suck it down. That is, is so good. what doesn't good. make sense about really? it. That's the grossest way of eating. Oh, listen. This would be a place, uh, a, a, a bar in Grand Central Station. I hope it's still there in New York City. I mean, it was a, just an oyster bar. And you'd sit there. Mm. But you're not even chewing Yeah, them. it doesn't matter. You can taste it. Oh, that's gross. Okay, how about caroling and having oysters <laughs> on the half shell? Does that make sense? Oh, I don't think it does. <laughs> Just curious. Right. Oh. We're 
happy to have Bruce Ankoviak back on the program. Bruce is a professor at uh, of law at St. Vincent College, previously at Duquesne Law School. And uh, Bruce is here to talk about the Constitution, because for all of the conversation that we have about it, Bruce, I think you're probably right in thinking that the average American doesn't know a whole lot about what they're talking about. It, it is a baffling subject to many people. It, the word Constitution gets bantied around, but... It, it's it's an absolutely fascinating thing to study, and it and it gives you a deeper appreciation for those people we refer to as founding fathers, and sometimes we put them up on a on a pedestal to think they were some sort of um, you know minor gods, which they were clearly not, and and never saw themselves as this. Um, you have to get a, a little context of this. Uh, from 1776 to 1789, the Constitution was not in effect. We were still a country, but we were governed by a thing called the Articles of Confederation, which was a very, very weak document in terms of the powers of the federal government. And what had resulted was chaos. Uh, the economy was being strangled. Uh, states were in open bickering with each other over just about everything. The the great potential of this country was essentially being thwarted because there was not enough authority being given to a central power. Now, there was a very good reason people were worried about that. We fought a very bitter and bloody war to get rid of a king, and we didn't want another one. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want any person who came in with the uh, tyrannical power to just call all the shots without the input of the people. So uh, after a, a recognition that things weren't working so well, a number of people decided that there had to be a convention of the states. Initially, everybody thought we're just going to amend the articles, but as soon as they got to Philadelphia in 1787, everybody pretty much decided we have to throw that out and start writing all over again. Hmm. One of the principal people who was an author was James Madison. Madison, interestingly, was influenced a great deal by a group of materials books that he had received from his friend Thomas Jefferson, who was in uh, France as the United States minister to France at the time. And Jefferson sent him a whole bunch of books by the Scottish philosophers, David Hume and Adam Smith, very practical-minded people those two were, and they were tremendously influential on Madison's views about how this should be done. And then when we get to the convention in Philadelphia, well, we need somebody to preside. Uh, into the mix comes the person everybody immediately assumed would preside, George Washington. Uh, Washington is a fascinating figure, N not a prolific writer, not considered a prolific thinker per se, but clearly a man who exuded leadership qualities that everybody just recognized. Washington becomes president of the convention, and he does something that very few people remember or, or recognize as important. He immediately imposed a press blackout. Hmm. Nobody in that convention was allowed to speak to the press 
or leak anything about their discussions. Were they allowed to tweet, Bruce? uh, (laughs) They were if they could time travel, and and that was the condition he put on it. So it never really happened. Um, He, uh, at one point, one of the delegates had left their notes of the convention for that day in the room that they were meeting. Washington found these notes, and the next day came in, slammed the notes down on the desk in front of him, and said, would the gentleman who left these please come up and claim them? Nobody moved. Everybody was definitely afraid to go up there and claim those notes. And and his purpose for this was brilliant. He said, there are going to be compromises here, serious compromises. And politicians, if they announce that their position on something, the last thing in the world they want to do is go back on that position. Mm -hmm. They don't want to seem like they're waffling. And he wanted to give everybody sufficient room to waffle. Um, His influence was such that for a period of time, the suggestion for the executive branch was not to have one president, but to have a committee of three. Mm -hmm. That That decision came down to one because everybody just assumed, well, once we do this, Washington's going to be the president. He is going to set the right tone for the presidency. Now, they go through all the summer of 1787 writing this document. And when they leave to take it out to the states for ratification, and I always do this with my, my constitutional law classes, I say to these people, can you show me in the, the Constitution they wrote that summer? Where does it reference free speech? It doesn't. Where does it reference freedom of religion or freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures? And the answer is it does not. None of those specific protections were in the initial document. And so then I asked these people, well, why not? Did they just run out of time? That uh, They lost their lease on the convention hall? Um, didn't they care about these things? And obviously they cared deeply about them. But what they believed was that the form of government they created, this separation of powers, giving the executive, legislative, and judicial branches equal authorities in different spheres and separating the power of the states and the federal government, that this system was going to create the best protection of individual liberty. And they did this on the basis of one wonderful assumption. They said, you can't trust politicians. (laughs) politicians lust for power. And if you give one politician power, but you give them a wonderful set of rules about how they're not supposed to abuse it, they're going to abuse every one of those rules within a short period of time. The only way to do this is to curtail the power of the individual politician. And how do you do that? You can't rely on them just to not abuse it. What you have to do is you have to put them in with a whole bunch of other abusers who are all lusting for that same amount of power. And in that battle, the battle between the states and the federal government and the battle between Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court, all this battling going on, we the people will be pretty much as free as we can be. <laughs> and and, and what I, the analogy I always give my students, and they, they think I'm completely crazy, which is probably not completely inaccurate, <laughs> is I say, what if, what if you had a pet shark 
and you had this pet shark in, in a nice big pond, and you were concerned about this pet shark because, you know, how much he was eating. Uh, if I were you, I wouldn't cut back on the amount of food because if you do and you go down there to throw that shark a little less food, that shark's going to come out and, and make your arm lunch. So you better give them the same amount of food. But how do you do this? Do you tell them not to eat that much? Well, no. What do you do? You buy a second shark. You throw another shark in there, and all of a sudden, they won't get the same amount. This theory of dividing and creating a conflict to protect the people was truly revolutionary. Nobody in the history of the world had really tried anything like this, and they thought this was going to work. Now, they go out from Philadelphia to the States, and the States are quite skeptical of this. It would be like, you know, uh, Mr. Madison, uh, can you tell us where this has been tried and worked before? And when he said, well, not really, it hasn't really been tried, the answer was, well, look, this is nice, but you're going to have to give us a guarantee. And the Bill of Rights became the first great political deal made. It was, okay, you people ratify this Constitution, and the first order of business is going to be we're going to write a Bill of Rights that is going to protect certain critical liberties that were actually already spelled out, for example, in the Constitution of Pennsylvania, which is older than the federal Constitution, and it spells out freedom of speech and all that other good stuff. And they promised this will be the first order of business. That deal went through. A new Congress came into play. A Bill of Rights was drafted, went out to the states, and went into effect in 1791. And in that then, and there were people, by the way, Alexander Hamilton, for example, said writing a Bill of Rights is a very bad idea because the minute you start listing rights, some smart lawyer down the line is going to say, well, you didn't list this one, so it's not a right. And, you know, Hamilton was saying, look, uh, you know, we, we the people have the power. What we let government do is all the power they have. And if we didn't specifically give it to them, then we still retain that power and that authority. And so the Bill of Rights comes in as this compromise to protect against the federal government. And until the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, that Bill of Rights only applied against the federal government, and it was only after that in the 14th Amendment that it began to be applied to the states. Wow. And, and so it's, it's an absolutely fascinating thing. These guys were not political theorists. They were not philosophers. They were very practical people looking for a solution that would work with real human beings. Yeah. Bruce Nkowiak from St. Vincent College. Bruce, I love this. I mean, like, like you just said, they weren't theorists. They certainly weren't psychologists. They just understood human yeah, nature. Yeah, they understood human nature. That's what I was thinking. And they understood themselves because yeah. they were the politicians. Mm-hmm. They understood themselves very well. That's really fascinating. Wow, that's really fascinating. Thank you, Bruce, for Bruce, that insight. I, I wish we could have uh, 
more time with this. Next time you come on, I'd love to hear you talk about different views of the Constitution, as in how different uh, judges or particularly Supreme Court justices view that document um, yeah. and kind of what it means to come down on a conservative or liberal Everyone's side. Everyone's got on their that. take, don't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But that's oh, for next time. It, it's, it's very different. Yes. Thank, Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All really right. good stuff. Yep, that's Professor Bruce Yankoviak. He's a law professor at St. Vincent College, formerly at Duquesne University. He's a monthly guest on our show, and I look forward to it every single time. Always fascinating. With the wave of a conductor's baton, a heartbreaking melody began to resound inside a concert hall in London. A song composed by a prisoner in a Nazi death camp that, until Monday of this week, had not been played in public. The song is called Futile Regrets, and as the composition was titled, unfolded like the pages of a tragic novel. I'm reading from today's Washington Post. The violin strings reverberated with the weight of unspeakable sorrows, and with each note, the instruments conjured the cold, unforgiving realities of the barbed wire and watchtowers that once imprisoned its anonymous composer at Auschwitz. Now, the song is part of a collection of 210 pieces of music that British composer and conductor Leo Geyer stumbled upon in 2015 while visiting Auschwitz. He made the trip after he was commissioned to create a piece honoring Martin Gilbert, who is a historian, was a historian, and a Holocaust expert who died that February. So he traveled to Auschwitz, and he was walking around the site when he had a conversation, he said, with one of the archivists. And the archivist said in a somewhat offhanded way that there were some musical manuscripts in the archives. And Geyer said, I nearly fell over at the time when he mentioned it because I could not believe that such a thing could exist and that it had been overlooked all of this time. So into the archives he went, he did have access. Now, it's known, well known, that inside these death camps, the Germans allowed the Jews to have music, somehow as a means of controlling the masses, Mm -hmm. sometimes as a means of encouraging them in some weird way, however that might sound. But in these archives, um, Geyer says, it took him more than six or seven visits to go through these pieces. They were mostly jigsaw puzzled together. He said, it's the equivalent of several hundred jigsaw puzzles because many of the pieces are missing. It requires a certain amount of musical detective work to put the pieces mm, together. Interesting. Okay. There were fragments, he says, of different songs. Um, some were unfinished. Much of the sheet music had been been burnt or tried to be burned. Most of the scores were incomplete. And then, this is really interesting to me, further complicating the matters was the fact that the orchestras were often a hodgepodge of random instruments that were available inside the camps. Some of the instruments uh, were traditionally not used in an orchestra, like an accordion or saxophones or mandolins. It's what people brought into the death camps with them, and they were allowed to keep. Hmm. Therefore, uh, Geyer says, a lot of the music would have sounded very strange. It's a lot of pieces that we know and love, for example, like Mozart and Beethoven. And, of course, imagining that with all these strings, these strange bass instruments and the accordions, it would not sound like what we would have known the traditional pieces to sound. 
However, despite all these different challenges, all these jigsaw pieces, all these repeated visits to the death camps, he encountered powerful messages of resilience hidden on the crumbling pieces of the paper. Most of the songs, eerily, lively German marching tunes, but there were these pieces, these regret songs, mm. stirring, heartbreaking at the same time, and hidden away after more than 80 years, finally recovered in a Monday for the first time. That's incredible. Heard to a public That's audience. incredible. Isn't it? My guess wow. is we'll hear more of this, and hopefully it will come to the fore in recordings, whatever that may be. I was just thinking of what it would be like to be in uh, a camp like that, be a composer. Everybody would try to come up with a thing that would keep them alive. Sure. Right. But the song. So the song. regrets. Yeah. So the song. But the com- the compositions, the composing maybe kept him alive. Probably. You know, day to day, day to day. He pleased someone's yeah. ear that allowed him to. Yeah. To live. Or maybe that was the maybe he would have just fallen into despair mm-hmm. himself without that. So it emotionally kept him alive. And then could you imagine the musicians themselves being given the opportunity to, to play something, to sit down here's how, and imagine how would you copy that and how precious paper and pen would have been mm-hmm. to allow enough copies to be passed out to the, in quotes, orchestra. And especially for those who did not read music, when were they allowed to practice? How long did that last? And then a public performance with all the other death camp survivors, everyone together in a group. What was that like? There's a power in music. There's a power in beauty. And I in a camp like that where there is just one evil mounted upon another evil, that power of beauty must have cut through. It must have cut through in a in a in a way that was wonderful and terrible at the same time. We think about, you know, because of the hostage situation that's going on right now between Israel and Hamas and what those hostages must be feeling. And it's been a little over 50-plus days, but as they're coming out, some tiny little information is being told about their torture and their captivity. None of it's good. But can you imagine even a deeper dive, these survivors of these death camps, day to day, and seeing everyone around you? Your parents may have been gone, your wife, your children, perhaps, all those things. And your survival is essentially minute by minute. Where, at the whim of a prison guard or whomever, you would be put to death. It's a heartbreaking thing. It is a heartbreaking Our deep thing. inhumanity towards each other. That's why all of us need to live and truly breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It's our only salvation in I'm this telling world. you, the only goodness is the goodness we find outside of us. <laughs> it's not something we can dig deep and find no, inside us. None of us are good. No, None of us are good enough. Well, there's a cheery way to end the show. <laughs> Look, it's true, though. It is true. Of course it anyway, is. Anyway, hey, you know, um, on a lighter note, the Pirates uh, announced their schedule, mm-hmm. and there's a new start time. Did you hear? No. What time? Yeah, it's 6.40. Oh, really? 6.40. Across the board. Across the board, except for Saturday games, which I think are going to be 4.10. Oh, I like it. But every night, so it's not going to change. It's not going to go to 7.05 in July. When school got June out. and July. It's not going to do that anymore. It's going to be 6.40 across the board. Really? Because it was 7.05 forever. Then they rolled it back to 6. During, when school was in session. Right. To 6. I think they did it at 6.35. Very nice. Let's go box. Tickets are on sale right now. The 
Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.